This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day Gorgosaurus. Pretty popular Albertan Canadian <laughs> dinosaur. Yes. We have a ton of dinosaur news. And we'd like to thank our Stegosaurus patrons, Chris, Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, and Blaze Campbell, who just joined Yes, welcome, Blaze. Thank you. And thank you to everybody for all of your support. And we really love, uh, I feel like we've been getting more messages lately. Yeah, in more different feedback, forms. Yeah. which is really nice. So if you want to join these stegosaurs or join your own level of dinosaurs on our Patreon, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I know dino. So jumping right into the news, thanks to Ricardo on Patreon for sharing some awesome new theropod tracks from Abruzzi, Italy, which is near Ricardo's hometown. That's why he found out about them. They're in a locality that's northeast of Rome, but it's a little ways away. And there are several prints of what appears to be theropods walking in soft mud. And so they're a little mushy and deformed. They're not like real clean looking prints most of the time. And there's one huge 135 centimeter or four and a half foot long print. Wow. And it's a little misleading because you hear that and you're like, how big? You think of a T-Rex foot and you're like, that's not even four and a half feet long. What kind of crazy theropod is this? So it turns out that it was probably crouching. And we've talked about before how dinosaurs kind of walk on their tiptoes. And then, you know, they have that thing where it looks like their knee is bending backwards, but that's really just their ankle. So if they put their whole foot essentially on the ground with that bending backward knee type thing, then you get this print where you have the toes way out at the front and then you have the foot all the way behind that. Kind of like how our footprint is, you know, toes are a pretty small portion of it. And it's the same thing on a dinosaur. But usually since dinosaurs are on their tiptoes, it's just kind of the three toes that you see on a theropod print. So you end up with something, you know, more like a broom kind of <laughs> shape. It just kind of juts out at the end. It's just like in Land Before Time in there, and they end up sleeping in a, in a footprint. I think it's a, t a sharp tooth. I don't remember. Oh, okay. <laughs> I remember. We'll have to rewatch it. I'll take it. your word for it. And yeah, so it's kind of like a crouching, interesting looking print. And so it's not really a typical tridactyl print, but it is pretty big for the time. It's from the early Cretaceous, which is about 120 million years ago, or at least this print is, but they didn't assign it to any specific taxa. They call it a, quote, large-bodied, probably predatory theropod, end quote. 
So it's kind of hard to say exactly what it is. It's impressively big for the time because, you know, things like T-Rex and stuff didn't show up until later. And we don't know too much about dinosaurs in Italy in general. There are a few track sites around, but I think this is the main one from that time period now. So it's always good to get these new bits of information. Some of the interesting things about the track site is it's a two-hour hike from the nearest town and it's only accessible in the summer because otherwise it's too difficult to get to with all the snow because it's up in like the mountains. And they describe the track site as steeply inclined. <laughs> and when I was looking at it, I thought that just looks like a cliff face. That doesn't <laughs> like it's just like a wall. That doesn't look like where you'd expect to see footprints. And they say it's about a 60% grade and there's just no way you can walk up that they have a picture of a guy kind of rappelling down it because that's pretty much <laughs> that's the only way to get close more to than them. steeply inclined yeah, i'd say very steeply inclined so in order to take pictures of it what they did is they used a dji hexacopter which is also known as a drone and it has six propellers which is why it's a hexacopter and that gives you a nice stable platform for taking pictures. And then they flew around with their little camera. And they, I think they said they took about 300 pictures in like rapid succession all over the track site. And they documented the whole area. They had to stay about five meters away from the track site because the drone didn't have proximity sensors and they didn't want to bash into it. <laughs> so... Yeah, they came up with really good results, though, and they produced a high-res photogrammetry of the site, which is really cool looking, and it allows you to actually get close and personal with it without having to rappel down a cliff, which is really nice. And I was actually, I was looking at the methods section of the paper where they talk about exactly what materials they used, and they said they used a specific Canon model, and I was like, oh, I wonder how expensive that camera is. It's like an eight-year-old point-and-shoot that you could probably get for like 30 bucks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so the photogrammetry is pretty awesome that you can just use such low, you know, relatively low quality cameras. You don't need like a big DSLR or something set up to get these pictures and make a really awesome model. That's cool. Hey, Sabrina, do you remember what bloat and float is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of gross. Yeah. So... <laughs> The basic idea is you have a dinosaur or some other animal and it dies and then it gets bloated because it's decomposing and gases are like released inside its body. So it kind of turns into a balloon. Smells wonderful. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and then it can float around. So <laughs> we, I think we mentioned it with a ceratopsian recently that was discovered where we don't usually see ceratopsians and we were like, could it have possibly floated all the way across this inland sea in North America? That would have been by a bloat and float kind of mechanism. So this new bloat and float dinosaur Yay. <laughs> was found in the Cerro del Pueblo formation in Mexico. It's an indeterminate hadrosaur that bloat and floated or float and floated. I'm not sure how to past tense bloat and float, but they found scattered skull, vertebrae, rib, hip, and limb bones. And they have a couple reasons that they think it bloated and floated instead of just it dying there. Specifically, there wasn't much weathering on the bones. And they say, quote, the cushioning effect of the fine-grained sediments and the abundant plant fossil material protected the hadrosaur carcass from abrasion during transportation, end quote. 
Just <laughs> so it was like resting on a bed of leaves as it floated down That's the kind river. That's kind of nice. Yeah. And they said there was some weathering, but it was only on outer bones. So I guess it was starting to decompose and the air could get at some of the bones, but it was, you know, on the outside, it wasn't like deep in the dinosaur. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, it fossiled in a lagoon, which I guess is a good place to bloat and float to. They also said that the bones were scattered in kind of a way that you would expect from bloat and float. So they did a whole mathematical model of where the bones exactly ended up and you know, some of them were in these vertical positions and things, and it just looked like something might have floated over there and then sunk. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty interesting. And then after it bloated and floated to the place, they think it got chewed on by some crocodilians because there are <laughs> teeth marks and like puncture holes in it. And they don't have taste buds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> and, Do they have taste buds? I don't know. But Yeah. And then possibly chewed on by a dromaeosaur also. Although I, I don't know if you'd be able to tell if that was before or after it was kind of in this marine mm -hmm. slash just freshwater environment. Then if that's not bad enough, at the very end, it looks like it was kind of broken up by being trampled because a lot of the bones were broken in many, many places in a way that you'd expect from it getting walked on over there and over again. There was no more meat left, so it's okay to stomp on. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Yep. So that's kind of an unpleasant way to go, but it made some good fossils. So. At least it had that nice bed of leaves or whatever it was floating on. First. Yeah. <laughs> Little funeral procession. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of crocodilians, I have a real quick non-dinosaur news article, and this is about a crocodilomorph that's and its eggs. That's tangentially related. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's a reason for talking about it. I'll, I'll explain. So this crocodilomorph laid some eggs in Portugal and, well, present-day Portugal, and <laughs> some of them were found in dinosaur nests. So the researchers say that the ancient delta where they laid these eggs would have been an ideal place to kind of nest and live for lots of different animals, including dinosaurs and crocodilomorphs and all sorts of other things that like to be near the water and lay eggs. And they named the eggs, I think it's Crocolithes dinophilus, and dinophilus refers to the fact that they're from a dinosaur nest. So they're now the oldest known crocodilomorph eggs from the late Jurassic about 150 million years ago. And unfortunately, they didn't offer any hypotheses for why the eggs were found in a dino nest. Do you think it's anything like, you know, certain dinosaurs, sometimes they found different dinosaur eggs in the nest and they think it was like they snuck their eggs in for another parent too, yeah. to take care of? Yeah, like a cuckoo bird kind of thing. Yeah. You sneak the eggs in. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if crocodiles are that smart or crocodilomorphs, but... Well, it's hard to say. Yeah. And I don't think the eggs, I mean, at least from the fossil record, it's pretty obvious to paleontologists that they aren't dinosaur eggs. Mm -hmm. So you'd think that maybe the dinosaur would notice like, what the hell is this egg? It doesn't look anything like my eggs, but I don't know. I was just reading on Cora something. Somebody asked like, what would happen if you put like a chicken that's brooding and you just kind of slip in some duck eggs and they didn't <laughs> notice and like, what would happen? And apparently... Whoever answered on Cora said that they used to do that because the ducks, once they laid their eggs, didn't 
care as much. I, I don't remember. They don't the, brood them as well or something? Yeah, I don't remember the reasoning, but they would do that. And then the, the ducks would hatch and they do that thing where they imprint. So they think the chicken is the mom, but then the chicken acts so differently from the duck so that it would get so confused because usually, you know, a duck hatches, it sees its duck mom, and then they all like walk, walk in a row and follow the duck to water and swim around and eat whatever's in there. But the chicken just walks in all kinds of crazy directions, pecking and looking <laughs> for insects and stuff. And then they get all confused. And then if they get to water, then the duck's like natural instinct is to go into the water and just start swimming around. But then the chicken's like, what are you doing in this water? <laughs> get out. And everybody's confused. That's really funny. <laughs> That'd be funny if that happened with dinosaurs. Like a T-Rex, there's like a crocodilian egg in the nest and then the t-rex is like running around these areas <laughs> hunting and a crocodile is like trying to keep up with it <laughs> yeah. that would be cool yeah i wonder so i guess it depends on the bird or the dinosaur if whether or not they can detect the difference between an egg that's not theirs in their nest we also often talk about these debates on which dinosaur is the longest and how it's not really a good debate to have because it's so difficult to tell and there's such big error margins that saying like oh t-rex is the biggest no spinosaurus is the biggest no you know gigantosaurus is the biggest it's all you know really hard to tell and plus a lot of times you're not even working with full-sized adults so that makes it even more complicated and you don't have full skeletons so anyway there's an updated size for a bunch of abelosaurids and specifically Pycnonomosaurus, which was originally estimated to be about 7 or 8 meters long, which is 23 to 26 feet, pretty sizable, is now estimated to be about 8.6 to 9.2 meters, or 28 to 30 feet long, and that makes it the largest known abelosaurid. If you're super familiar with abelosaurids, you might say, hey, I'm pretty sure Carnotaurus or abelosaurus is bigger than that, and you would sort of be right, because we used to think that. One of the reasons these researchers started looking into this is that they noticed the bones of Pycnonomosaurus were all larger than the bones of other abelosaurids that are supposedly larger. <laughs> so when they looked into it a little bit, they found that there wasn't a consistent method used to calculate the dinosaur body lengths. So one person might use it one ratio of a shoulder blade to the overall length of the body. Someone else might be using a leg bone or an arm bone or who knows what. And you end up with all these varied estimates. Sometimes they would pick a specific size. Like they'd say, we think it's about 12 meters long. Sometimes they would say, oh, we think it's between nine and 11 meters. Just very all over the place. So what these researchers did is they took tons of measurements from the relatively complete abelosaurids to get a model for body length versus these various bone sizes. And then they recalculated the entire clade of abelosaurids. And then we have our new hierarchy of the largest abelosaurid. So like I said, the biggest one now, 28 to 30 feet. The next three all shrank <laughs> from previous <laughs> estimates. And the second biggest is Carnotaurus, now estimated at 26 feet or 7.8 meters. Next up is Abelosaurus, which is about 7.4 meters or 24 feet. And last is Ecrexanatosaurus, which is about 7.4 meters or 24 feet also. And that shrunk quite a bit. That shrunk about 10 feet. Yeah. Or three meters. Yeah. So that one used to be considered the largest Abelosaurid. And it was, I don't know, based on something that didn't work out so well with the math when you looked at all the bones combined. 
So those are our new largest ones. I think Carnotaurus is still the largest relatively complete abelosaurid. That Pycnonomosaurus is technically bigger, most likely, but we don't have nearly as many bones. We don't have that cool skull with the little horns on it and stuff like that. So Carnotaurus is still really awesome. If that's your favorite, don't feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing I found really interesting, too, was that at the smaller end of the spectrum, not much changed. The smallest one's still the smallest one. Second smallest is still the second smallest. So that bigger end where the estimates started to get a little crazy. It's interesting. Yeah, and it kind of follows that trend that we talk about how over time dinosaurs seem to shrink in the literature. (laughs) Yeah. They're still huge, but yeah. Yeah. They did all, I noticed follow the i think it's called cope's theory which is that animals get bigger over time and obviously he was a dinosaur paleontologist and they found that with abelosaurids too that they all tended to get bigger over time yeah why not bigger is better (laughs) and we also have a little bit of ankylosaur news which is obviously the best kind of dinosaur news i don't know about best (laughs) but it is pretty good (laughs) So there are some new ankylosaur bones and armor that were found in Hungary, and they are assigned to Struthiosaurus and Hungarosaurus. <laughs> and we got to see a Hungarosaurus at the Natural History Museum in Budapest mm-hmm. a few years ago. It was really cool. So they're both nodosaurids, which means they don't have tail clubs and aren't as good as ankylosaurids because tail clubs are one of the things that make ankylosaurus so cool. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> They do have some really cool armor, and this new find included armor in situ above the hips, meaning it's kind of preserved exactly the way the animal died. So a lot of times they're kind of scattered, the scutes in the armor, but having it all right where it originally was is a really cool find. And on top of that, they found a pair of osteoderms with 25 centimeter or 10 inch spikes that they think might have been on the shoulders or somewhere on the back to protect it. So pretty awesome. I love a good ankylosaur find. I know. Yeah. And they're finding (laughs) a lot of these Hungarosaurus. I think they said that was the eighth one they found. Oh, cool. Yeah. So then you get a pretty good picture. Especially, yeah. And ankylosaurs in general are really hard to find. They're pretty uncommon. Mm -hmm. Not like the hadrosaurs that you can't shake a stick without hitting (laughs) (laughs) what are the cows of the cretaceous yeah they're everywhere i guess only in the cretaceous though they didn't even exist in the jurassic or the triassic so well good for them (laughs) (laughs) late bloomers those hadrosaurs (laughs) so we have some jurassic world 2 news a lot of you may have already seen this but colin trevorrow tweeted a photo of a first look of I guess one of the sets, and it's a photo of a young girl standing in a natural history museum, and she's looking at this really large Triceratops skull. Yeah, Triceratops in like the largest air quotes of all time, because it doesn't really look much like a Triceratops. It's got these crazy horns, and like it looks pretty goofy. Yes, but first, I want to talk about how people are speculating that museums might play a large part in the movie, or maybe this photo just shows, quote, a brief moment of quiet before Chris Pratt smashes through the wall riding a mutant cyborg T-Rex, according to Extinct Monsters. I liked I, that one. I think that's unlikely. <laughs> unlikely, but still. I mean, it's fun to, to think about. So the museum has this Victorian design, and there's wood-paneled walls and skeletons on open pedestals, which actually uh, kind of reminded me of that art gallery room in the Royal Tyrell. 
Yeah. Anyway, the Triceratops skull, as Garrett mentioned, is extra large. And that might mean that maybe it's a hybrid. Or uh, as Extinct Monsters points out, the Triceratops skull looks like the Charles Knight painting of Agathomus Silvestris from back in 1872. It was the first described ceratopsian, but it was described without a skull, and now it's considered to be potentially synonymous with Triceratops. But it's spiny, and it's large, and Charles Knight's depiction was used for the Agathomus in the 1925 movie The Lost World. So Extinct Monsters was saying, like, is this a possible nod to Agathomus? It's hard to say so early on, but that'd be kind of cool to harken back to this early paleo art. Yeah, you don't see a lot of that in Jurassic Park. It seems like they do it a lot in King Kong and some of the other movies where they kind of do homages to old dinosaurs. Yeah, but it's totally different uh, outlook and team doing this series, so. Yeah, I heard somebody, I think on Reddit was talking about how this shows that there's going to be a new kid in it because it's a young uh, redheaded girl. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking maybe it's a flashback of Claire, but yeah. people are like, you're crazy. That's not what's happening. So I hope it is because I'm going to be like, ha I was right. <laughs> well, I think last I read the actress playing that young girl hasn't been named yet. So like no one really knows what's going on with her role. Yeah. It, speaking as a redhead, I've noticed <laughs> that a lot of times if you have like an old redhead and a young redhead, they're usually either related if they're in the same movie <laughs> or one's like a flashback of the other. There aren't usually just tons of redheads floating around in um, movies. Yeah, okay, maybe yeah, maybe movies. I'm thinking of a, the new CW TV show, Riverdale, has a bunch of redheads that are all related. Huh, there you go. But anyway, that has nothing to do with dinosaurs. <laughs> also in Jurassic World news, there's a new video on Twitter with J.A. Bayona making a T-Rex puppet roar, and Bayona is currently directing Jurassic World 2, as most of you probably know. And then there's another picture like behind that, behind the scenes, <laughs> where there's Colin Trevorrow filming the scene on his phone, which is what the original picture or what the original video is of. So it's like inception situation. But Trevorrow directed the first Jurassic World, as we know, but he's also the writer and executive producer for Jurassic World 2. So he's still on set. I love that they're playing with puppets. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty funny one. It's like just a head and then two little tiny arms. Like, yeah. and that's it. That's the whole <laughs> puppet. <laughs> Next, the London specimen Archaeopteryx is part of a traveling exhibit in Tokyo, Japan, as part of the Treasures of the Natural World, Best of London's Natural History Museum. And it opened at the National Museum of Nature and Science in Tokyo on March 18th. So the London specimen is the holotype for Archaeopteryx, and is still used for research. And one thing that London officials had to worry about when sending it to Japan were earthquakes. So the thin parts of the fossil have this polyethylene glycol-soaked gauze supporting it underneath. And there's also a lot of measuring devices to check its temperature and humidity. And the exhibit will go on display in other parts of Japan before returning to London, which is pretty cool. I didn't realize it was still being used for research. I guess that's not surprising. Yeah, whenever it's a holotype, I think... Because that's the one you have to compare to to see if that's the real species, mm -hmm. the, anything you find. Yeah, with stuff like 3D printing and good scans, you don't necessarily need to actually compare to the physical specimen all the time. Yeah. Next, we have an update on the Argentinosaurus from Field Station Dinosaurs that caught fire last year. 
the insurance company has said that a welder accidentally torched it. So they're suing conveyors by North American Inc. of Clifton, which is the company that Field Station hired to maintain and repair their dinosaurs, and they're suing them for negligence and breach of contract. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, it's too bad it happened, but... Yeah, what the courts say about who should have, you know, not lit it on fire, whose fault it is that it <laughs> yeah. burst into flames. Even though it was all an accident. Yeah. Yeah. But speaking of dinosaur theme parks, the first dinosaur theme park in Pakistan has opened up. The dinosaurs, they roar and they move around, and they're pretty large, about 67 feet or 20 meters tall. I don't have too many other details about the theme park, but... Yeah, that's big. Yeah. For anyone in Wales, or near Wales, or visiting Wales, Wales Online shared this list of places that you can take your kids, or, you know, just your friends, to see dinosaurs in Wales. And it includes the National Showcase Center for Wales, which has more than 220 life-size dinosaur models. I didn't realize it even had that. There's Dino Quiz, which is a dinosaur golf course. There's the National Museum of Cardiff, Dinosaur World, a new interactive show, and dinosaur eggs on display at the Cardiff Castle, to name a few. Next, there's a new documentary series called Ancient Earth, which is now on CuriosityStream, and that's a site where you can stream science, history, tech, and nature documentaries starting at $2.99 per month. So Ancient Earth shows prehistoric animals, including dinosaurs, and there's three episodes. There's the Permian, the Triassic, and the Cretaceous. If you've seen it, let us know. So there's two that include dinosaurs and one that doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And if you're interested in free dinosaur videos online, which are even better than $2.99 a month, there's <laughs> a new miniseries on YouTube called Dino Trails. I call it a miniseries because I don't know what else to call it. It's an interesting thing made by a company called Telus Optic. And they focus exclusively on Alberta and British Columbia, Canada, through all sorts of different types of videos. But then they have these five that are about dinosaurs. The first one covers Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta. And it was really good. It had a nice discussion with Phil Curry and it had really high production value. So I'm probably going to watch the other four pretty soon. Yeah, I watched the other four. They're all very good. And they talk to different people. Phil Curry pops up in at least one other. Hmm. And then he was talking about the Philip J. Curry Museum and how he's actually not terribly involved. It was more... <laughs> Honorary title yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. It's a good show. You could tell that it was filmed a little while ago because they talk about some things that they're working on right now. And we know from our news segments that those were like a year, year and a half ago. But... It's still pretty current and really good, especially compared to a lot of other dinosaur shows. Yeah, and there's a lot to cover in Alberta and British Columbia. Mm -hmm. Next, we've talked about the puppet show Earth's Dinosaur Zoo Live before, but now Frederick News Post published this interview with one of the puppeteers, uh, Myron Gusso. So there's three puppeteers in the show, and they work with hand puppets and puppets that they wear that weigh 90 to 100 pounds. Ugh. So they train by going to the zoo to observe animal movements, and they figure out how to move to show emotion, which reminded me of your interview, Garrett, a while back. Yeah, with Ari Rudenko, I was thinking that too, where they were going and watching and mimicking birds, mm -hmm. specifically chickens. <laughs> it seemed like that helped a lot for their interpretation. So I could see how that'd be helpful for a puppeteer too. Yeah. So these puppeteers, they train for about two to four weeks. And they also interact a lot with kids on stage. So as uh, Myron put it, 
quote, our show is nothing without it. It's not children helping us. It's them helping their own selves. It's their show. And that's pretty cool. And you make sure that they're comfortable and they're actively engaged and Yeah, they're like on stage with them and stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. Speaking of puppeteers, the Nottingham Museum's Dinosaurs of China team in the UK had what they called Dino Factor auditions. And they're searching for someone to be their Sinraptor from now until October. So a firm in China has designed the costume with input from Dr. Adam Smith from Nottingham's Natural History Museum and Dr. Wang Chi from the University of Nottingham. And I think they already had their auditions, but it's interesting seeing what they were looking for. It's funny when you said dino factor, I was thinking of like fear factor, like you'd just be like in a room and there'd be all sorts of like dinosaurs coming at you. Mm. But I think they were going for like X X factor. factor. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And there's more stuff going on in the UK. So the Exmouth Art Group in the UK is going to be creating a mural depicting the Jurassic Coast World Heritage Site. This mural will be nearly 300 feet or 90 meters long. So that's quite the project, but that'll be really cool once it's done. Yeah. I still want to turn our house into a mural one of these days. That'd be pretty cool. We will definitely stand out in the neighborhood. (laughs) We'll be that house. Why wouldn't you want to stand out with dinosaurs? (laughs) Who doesn't like dinosaurs? Next, Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs reported on the Utah Raptor Project Competition. So basically, it's a contest to help spread the word about Jim Kirkland and others' GoFundMe for the Utah Raptor Project, which we've talked about a few times. They're raising money to prepare and study this nine-ton block of Utah Raptor fossils. And there's supposed to be just a bunch of them in there. I don't think they even know exactly because it's encased in this huge block. Yeah, and and I think there's more than just Utah raptors, and it's different ages of Utah raptors, and like will be really great once it's done or once it's been prepared and can be fully studied. But yeah, they've been trying to raise money for a while. So in this competition, from now until April 11th, you can illustrate how you think the Utah raptors ended up in this block slash bone bed in a tongue-in-cheek, humorous way, and you get extra points for being anatomically correct. So upload your illustration, if you have one, somewhere online, then leave a link to it in the comments of the Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs post, as well as a mention and a link to the Utah Raptor Project. And we'll share a link so you can find it easily. They said comics are okay, but they prefer single images, and the winner will get a dinosaur book, a card, and doodles, as well as artwork from Joshua Noop, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, sorry. And also in fundraising news, Taya and Balor from the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs, who we interviewed, I guess about this time last year, are headed back to Mongolia. And we talked about their traveling museum with them earlier. And it was basically like a big bus that they drove around Mongolia teaching everybody about what kind of dinosaurs used to be in Mongolia and why it's important to study paleontology and what cool things we've learned and how we can use that today. So this trip, they're going back to the Flaming Cliffs, and that's a place that we've found Protoceratops, Velociraptor, Gallimimus, Tarbosaurus, and all sorts of other dinosaurs. It's a really awesome spot in the Gobi Desert. But currently, there are no facilities there. There's no trails. There's no signs about dinosaurs. You really basically have to be a paleontologist or just for some other reason know that there are dinosaurs there. Yeah. I think there's not even anything really to read in Mongolian about dinosaurs. Yeah, just in general. There's like not any dinosaur books in Mongolian. 
So they're hoping to set up a permanent museum there, which would be an awesome thing to do. Some of our favorite museums are museums that are right there in paleontological sites surrounded by dinosaur fossils. And if you're interested in supporting them, you can go to mongoliandinosaurs.org and help to pay for their trip. So check out their site and hopefully we'll talk to Tayen Balor soon and see what kind of progress they're making on that museum. Yeah, we've heard a little bit about their plans. It's really exciting. Yeah. Next, thanks to Phil for sharing this one with us via Facebook. Sugar and Cotton is selling T-Rex earrings. So if you have pierced ears, you're looking for something to make them stand out. Uh, they come in black, gold, or silver, and they're shaped so they look like the T-Rex is like popping out halfway through your ear. <laughs> they're usually $49, but they're currently on sale for $14.95, and a portion of proceeds go to charity. And we'll post a link so you can see. Hopefully they're not sold out by the time you hear this. Yeah. I feel like you got a pair of those as a gift once. No, I got a T-Rex necklace. Oh, okay. Totally different. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, the necklace looks more like a skeleton. These earrings look like they're fleshed out. A recreation of the yeah, living dinosaur. Exactly. Next, I found another list of gifts for dinosaur enthusiasts. So this one's by Popular Science, and it includes a 12 dinosaur excavation kit called Dig It Up Dinosaur Eggs. And they're 12 clay eggs. You soak them in water, and then you chip away to get to toy dinosaurs. That's kind of fun. There's also uh, dinosaur planters, so you can plant something in a stegosaurus. <laughs> There's a 3D printed T-Rex shower head. <laughs> and an ultra ice dino that can shoot things from its mouth. That's this toy. And a dinosaur wine holder. So good mix of things for different ages. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a pretty wide variety. I've thought about 3D printing a dinosaur pot. There are all sorts of different 3D printed pots since all you need is just like anything, mm -hmm. any shape. It doesn't even have to be watertight because a lot of pots have holes in them. <laughs> Something you can put dirt in. <laughs> <laughs> probably want it to be non-toxic, I guess, but... Yeah, probably. Yeah. If you're looking for something to read, there's a new book that involves dinosaurs called Every Hidden Thing by Kenneth Oppel, and it's set during the time of the Bone Wars, and it's this kind of star-crossed lover's story that goes with it. So there's a son and a daughter of rival fossil hunters. And in a behind-the-book description, Kenneth wrote that he wondered what it would have been like to dig up the first dinosaur bone. So he did a lot of research, starting with Iguanodon and the Bone Wars, and he also went on a short field expedition in Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta. There's pictures of him prospecting and photos from the Royal Terrell Museum, which was cool. Yeah, he did a lot of work going into this. And he said, quote, during my brief time in the Badlands, one of the amazing things I learned about paleontology was that the work methods haven't changed much in 140 years. You walk, you look, you dig, and when you find bone, you shovel. It can be tedious and sweaty, but exhilarating. After a day of prospecting, standing on a lookout, I asked my host, if you had a machine that could see inside all these hills, would you do it? He shook his head. What would be the fun of that? <laughs> he might not, but I think other people would. <laughs> yeah, we've, and we've talked to people who would. But it's cool that he dug so deep. I mean, this is um, an adult book. I think it might be a little bit graphic and there's a lot of romance and stuff, but he did a lot of research. Yeah, that's cool. I think it's interesting that he points out that the process of digging up bones hasn't changed that much, which I think is generally true. You don't have to do quite as much legwork for documenting because you don't have to like lay out all these grids and everything. But that's the main way that it's changed is the documentation. Mm -hmm. It's gotten a lot better, a lot more precise. 
and I think a little bit easier. But in terms of digging it up, you still use a pick or a toothbrush or whatever, and mm-hmm. you, you walk around. You don't. We don't do any kind of fancy digging into a hill because we know there's a fossil there. You're just walking around hoping to spot something. Yep. And speaking of authors of dinosaur books, there's a six-year-old from Indiana who published his first book called Dinosaur Survival Guide, and his name is Kingston Dyer. He calls himself the Dino King, and his book includes facts and advice about how to survive encounters with dinosaurs. He got inspiration from dinosaur documentaries on Netflix and apparently just started telling his parents different things, and they started writing it down. They're like, let's make something out of this. (laughs) So it took about a year to complete the book, and they even worked with an illustrator. Cool. Yeah. Got to be one of the the younger authors out there. Next, YouTube's testing new loading animations for its Android app, and they're testing three animations. But there's no guarantee that any of these will be used, but I hope at least one of them will, because there's a cluster of white dots that turn red, there's spinning red and blue circles, and then there's a red and white striped theropod with three loading dots below its feet. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. That reminds me that uh, Monopoly just got their final game tokens approved and one of them's the t-rex yeah so there's going to be three new tokens in the games there's the t-rex as garrett mentioned and a penguin and a rubber ducky which if you think about it are technically all dinosaurs right and they'll be replacing the wheelbarrow thimble and boot that's good nobody ever wanted to beat those yeah and you might recall this is based on this online vote back in january that we covered and i voted for the t-rex personally i think i voted for the (laughs) penguin too i don't remember about the rubber ducky that's funny I was thinking they were just going to add more, but maybe you can only have a maximum of like six players or something. They don't want to have like nine pieces in there. Yeah. Well, they already replaced the iron with a cat. Yeah. Iron's pretty terrible. I think the dog was usually the most popular, so it makes sense to have a cat. Yeah. So if you want this new board, it'll be on sale in August. I also like the car. You could also just get Dinopoly, which is like all dinosaurs. (laughs) Yeah. But if you want like the classic game. True. Although, can you still call it classic if it's got new pieces? I don't know. Yeah. They'll come back out with that in like another year and charge like twice as much. (laughs) Classic Monopoly with the thimble and the iron. Yeah. (laughs) And in other game news, this one's digital game news, Saurian has delayed the release of Saurian, the game. And they say that they're now estimating Saurian's release will be in Q2 of 2017. And then in parentheses, before July. Hopefully. Yeah. I don't, the fact that they say estimating this time, whereas before they said, you know, it will be released in Q1 makes me a little bit skeptical. Maybe they just don't want to commit again and then miss another deadline. But they say that there are a few key unfinished bits that are delaying the launch, specifically the ontogeny, also known as the growth system, so that you can start as a little baby dinosaur and then get bigger and eat larger and larger prey, I guess, (laughs) or larger and larger plants, depending on which animal you are. They need to fix some of the sounds, like the music and the sound effects. And they said they also need to do some optimization because there's so much foliage we've talked about before. They did a lot of work into figuring out what kind of plants were around in the Hell Creek at the time. So... With all that foliage and all these AI creatures running around, it can really slow a computer down and they want to optimize that so that everybody can play it. And then they also need to do some balancing so that the AI isn't too smart or too dumb or too weak or too powerful so that it's actually fun to play is a nice feature. (laughs) And then there are some weird bugs that they're still dealing with. So 
Yeah, that's a lot to address. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, by July we'll have that. Maybe in time for some people on summer break to play would be good. Yeah. And last in the news, thanks to Tristan who shared this one with us via email. Discover the Dinosaurs Unleashed is a traveling exhibit, and it was in San Francisco this past weekend, March 17th to 19th, at Cow Palace in Daly City. Tickets cost $19 each, though it was $5 cheaper if you visited after 3 p.m., and general admission included access to the dinosaur exhibit, rides, scavenger hunt, raceway, and mini golf. There's also a T-Rex ticket for kids, which included admission, and uh, they got to do face painting and fossil panning, souvenirs, and more. So thanks again, Tristan. We were going to try to make it. We unfortunately couldn't because of scheduling conflicts. Tristan, if you made it, let us know and send us any pictures if you have them. And as a side note, Tristan does nature photography as a hobby, and he has some photos of dinosaur destinations on his website, TristanHowardProductions.com, and we'll share a link on our website. He also has a clip of a documentary he made on the Prairie Creek Redwoods State Park, where parts of the Lost World Jurassic Park and Walking with Dinosaurs was shot in Humboldt County. The segment on his site is on Fern Canyon. And he said in his email to us, quote, This is the shooting location of a compsognathus-induced death of an in-gen worker and an allosaurus-stegosaurus standoff. If you haven't visited, it's definitely worth checking out for its strong prehistoric atmosphere. And I had no idea about it, so it sounds pretty good. Yeah, I've been to that park, but I didn't know that it was a Jurassic Park park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thank you, Tristan. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.edu. 
www.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Gorgosaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur4602 via YouTube and Cole via Patreon. So thank you. The name means fierce lizard. It was a tyrannosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in Western North America, and fossils were found in Alberta and possibly Montana. There's one species, Gorgosaurus libertus. Other species have been assigned, though they were not correct. And that species name means balanced. It was first described in 1914 by Lawrence Lamb. The holotype is a nearly complete skeleton and skull found by Charles M. Sternberg in 1913 in Dinosaur Park Formation in Alberta and was the first tyrannosaurid found with a complete hand. At least 12 Gorgosaur specimens have been found, and the American Museum of Natural History collected hundreds of dinosaur specimens around that time, and they found four complete Gorgosaur skulls, three with skeletons, and Matthew and Brown described those in 1923. Awesome. Yeah. They also described a fifth skeleton that Charles Sternberg had found in 1917 and sold to the American Museum of Natural History, and it was smaller than other specimens, similar to other juvenile tyrannosaurids, and it had longer limb proportions and a lower, lighter skull, but they said at the time it was a new species called Gorgosaurus sternbergi, and now that's considered just to be a juvenile Gorgosaurus libertus. Yeah, it's always so hard to tell. Yeah. Gorgosaurus is most closely related to Albertosaurus. It's also distantly related to T-Rex. It's part of the subfamily Albertosaurinae, which is more closely related to Albertosaurus, makes sense. And Albertosaurinae had more slender builds, and they were smaller and they had lower skulls and longer tibias. So Gorgosaurus was similar to Albertosaurus, but there's subtle differences in the teeth and skull. Some people think Gorgosaurus libratus is Albertosaurus, and then Gorgosaurus would be this junior synonym since Albertosaurus was named first. But not everybody thinks that. And if you want to hear more about Albertosaurus, we talked about it in depth at episode 86. In 2003, a team found that Gorgosaurus was different from Albertosaurus because it had slightly longer legs and the skull was a little bit different. Gorgosaurus was also mostly found in older rocks than the majority of Albertosaurus fossils, so some people think that Gorgosaurus was an ancestor to Albertosaurus. William Diller Matthew and Barnum Brown thought that Gorgosaurus and Albertosaurus were the same back in 1922. And Dale Russell formally reassigned Gorgosaurus to Albertosaurus libertus in 1970. But not everybody agrees with this, including Phil Curry, who said that there are undescribed tyrannosaurids from Alaska, New Mexico, and other parts of North America that could help answer the question. Gregory Paul said that Gorgosaurus may be ancestral to Albertosaurus sarcophagus. There are some species that were incorrectly named Gorgosaurus, including a small tyrannosaurid from Hell Creek, named by Charles Gilmore in 1946 as Gorgosaurus licensis, and since renamed to Nanotyrannus by Bob Bakker in 1988. But some people think that Nanotyrannus is now just a juvenile T-Rex. In 1955, Evgeny Maliev named Gorgosaurus lancinator and Gorgosaurus novogilovi from two tyrannosaurids found in Mongolia, but in 1992, Kenneth Carpenter renamed Malevosaurus novogilovi, and now they're both considered to be juvenile Tarbosaurus batar. In 1856, Joseph Leedy described two tyrannosaurid teeth, there was nothing else that the animal found, and called them Dinodon. And Matthew and Brown said in 1922 that they were the same as Gorgosaurus teeth, but since there were no other fossils, they did not synonymize them. That's probably a good thing, because I think Gorgosaurus sounds a lot better than Dinodon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Tyrannosaur teeth in general look the same, so it's not for sure that those are Gorgosaurus. Yeah, it's always hard to name a dinosaur just from a couple teeth. A lot of times those end up getting scrapped later. 
Seems to be what Joseph Lady did the most, though. <laughs> Oops. Anyway, Dynadon is usually considered to be a gnomum dubium now. Some Tyrannosaurids from Two Medicine and Judith River in Montana are probably Gorgosaurus. It's not clear if it's Gorgosaurus libratus or a new species. There's one specimen now at the Children's Museum in Indianapolis that has a number of pathologies. There's a healed leg, rib fractures, infection that led to permanent tooth loss, and Oof. possibly a brain tumor. So that definitely had a rough life. The permanent tooth loss one sounds the worst to me. Well, a brain tumor's pretty brain bad. Brain tumors, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds awful. But the holotype also had some pathologies, including healed fractures and a deformed toe possibly from a fight with another dinosaur, which also sounds horrible, but not as bad as brain tumors and tooth loss. Permanent tooth loss. Yeah. <laughs> There's another Gorgosaurus that had many pathologies, fractures, multiple ribs healed from fractures, lesions from a bite on the face, but there's evidence it was healing before it died. And another Gorgosaurus had bite marks on its face, as well as a, quote, mushroom-like hyperostosis of a right pedal phalanx, end quote, that may be similar to a pathology that has been found on an unidentified ornithomimid. Gorgosaurs was an apex predator that fed on ceratopsids and hadrosaurs. It coexisted with Displetosaurus, and it was similar in size, but possibly there was some niche differentiation. It's rare for two Tyrannosaur genera to coexist, so some thought that Gorgosaurs hunted the hadrosaurs and Displetosaurus went for the ceratopsids, but one Displetosaurus was found with a hadrosaur in its gut, and a Displetosaurus bone bed had three Displetosaurus with five hadrosaurs. There's no evidence of Gorgosaurus pack behavior. Can't argue with that gut contents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gorgosaurus appears to be more common in the north and Displetosaurus in the south a little bit. So maybe that's another difference. Gorgosaurus' skull was a little smaller than Displetosaurus. It was 39 inches or 99 centimeters long, but it was large for its body, and it had large fenestra to reduce its weight, the large openings. They grew up to be 26 to 30 feet or 8 to 9 meters long and weighed about 2.5 tons. Gorgosaurus was a juvenile for about half its life, and then it had a rapid growth spurt. Since there's no intermediate-sized predators that have really been found, the juveniles probably filled this niche. It's kind of similar to Komodo dragons. Smaller gorgosaurs that were found had longer tibias than femurs, so they were fast runners. As a juvenile, gorgosaurs probably went after ornithomimids, who were faster prey. And then adult gorgosaurs had long hind limbs. The largest femur found was 41 inches or 105 centimeters long. Gorgosaurs had two-fingered forelimbs. The forelimbs were small proportionally, and they had two digits on each forelimb and four digits on each hind limb. The first digit of their hind limbs didn't touch the ground. They had a blunt snout, and the nasal bones were fused, and they had a circular eye socket, and they had crests in front of their eyes like Albertosaurus and Displetosaurus. There were 26 to 30 maxillary teeth and 30 to 34 teeth in the lower jaw, and they had a heavy tail. Phil Curry found skin impressions in 2001, and it was smooth, like secondarily flightless bird skin, and they didn't have scales, though scales were found on the specimen, but were widely dispersed and small, and other patches of skin had denser, larger scales. This helps to show that bigger dinosaurs didn't have feathers, since larger animals naturally lost less heat due to the smaller surface area to body volume ratio. And our fun fact of the day is that birds don't only use feathers for flight, display, camouflage physical protection, sensory inputs, waterproofing, and insulation from the cold. That's quite the list. <laughs> yeah. But they also use it for staying cool in the sun. 
So it's a little bit counterintuitive. And in the past, we've talked about how some of the larger dinosaurs might not have had feathers, or if they were in hotter environments, they might not have needed them because, you know, feathers keep you warm. But there was a study back in 2004 that compared kangaroos and emus in the harsh sun of the Australian outback. And they found that with kangaroos, their fur could help them dissipate about 75 to 85% of solar radiation, depending on how strong the wind was blowing. But emus could dissipate nearly 100% of the solar radiation with just their feathers. They didn't need any wind to help out. And that's despite the fact that the emus actually have darker colored feathers than kangaroos do. <laughs> I mean, kangaroos don't have feathers, but then their fur is. So it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but even compared to the red fur, I guess, is the color that kangaroos are. Emus, I guess, are mostly like brown, I mm. think. Mm -hmm. And even so, the emus were cooler, which is pretty interesting. And then emus, because of this, are pretty active in the daytime and they can just run around in the sun and all that kind of good stuff. Whereas kangaroos tend to stay in the shade during the summer because if they went out in the sun and they were hopping all over the place, absorbing extra sun radiation, they would be heating up too much. So it's pretty interesting. I don't know if anybody has used this as a justification for dinosaurs possibly having feathers in hot climates, but it would make sense assuming that they could have a similar kind of number of layers as emus because one of the benefits with emus is they have the wings that kind of cover a lot of their body and then they also have other feathers underneath so they have lots of layers of feathers that can help keep them cool in, in a weird way <laughs> so yeah feathers are like the coolest thing ever i wish i had feathers imagine <laughs> all the things we could do if you were the only one with feathers that'd be pretty weird then i'd just be famous <laughs> i guess <laughs> And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you want to join our, any of our dinosaur groups, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.